Section 20 of Criminal Investigation, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in April 2017. Criminal Investigation, A Practical Handbook for Magistrates, Police Officers and Lawyers, Volume 3, by Hans Gross. Translated by John Adam and John Collier Adam. Chapter 18. Cheating and Fraud. Section 1. General Considerations. If lawyers find a certain difficulty in understanding the nature of fraud, because it is by no means easy to fix the exact line of demarcation between civil wrongs and criminal wrongs, the investigating officer finds quite as great a difficulty in carrying on his investigations into them, all the more that a great many frauds demand a mass of special technical knowledge. For such knowledge there are frequently no experts, and, even when there are, their detailed report is of no good, for to compare the depositions, to understand every side of the question, the investigating officer ought to be himself an expert, and to catch at once the signification of every expression if he wishes himself to put new questions. Although the number of different kinds of fraud is very considerable, we can in the following pages deal with only a few of them. On the one hand, we cannot enter in detail into all the knowledge necessary to the investigating officer to unravel the procedure of frauds. On the other hand, we can hardly give any other counsel than this. Instruct yourself in this branch of human knowledge also. For, if one man has deceived another in the delivery to him of cloth, glass, iron, wood, grain, the investigating officer himself ought to know all about matters pertaining to cloth, glass, iron, wood, or grain, and if it is a complicated business concerning a railway, the stock exchange, or an inquiry in which special details have to be taken into account, it is the duty of the investigating officer unconscientiously to instruct himself in these different branches of knowledge. In grouping the various classes of fraud of which we intend to speak, we have started from different points of view, and have by preference dealt in the greatest detail with those concerning which little has as yet been published for example the falsification of stamps or seals, and those on which much has been written, but in a form not suited to the wants of the investigating officer, for example frauds in horse-dealing. We do little more than mention those classes, the particular study of which presupposes special knowledge previously acquired, and a complete explanation of which can in any particular case be given to the investigating officer by his experts, that is, frauds concerning antiquities and objects of art, or again those on which sufficient information can be found in books, for example, tricks with cards. In all other cases we cannot do better, as we have already said, than advise the investigating officer to seize every opportunity of instructing himself practically on all such questions. A day will come when he can put to profitable use the knowledge thus acquired. Section 2. Falsification of Documents A. 
falsification of documents in general. Falsification of documents presents a wide field of activity for different experts, and notably for the investigating officer. Many of the documents falsified are false passports, receipts for payments, passes for cattle or forest produce, etc. And, however small the importance of such papers may appear to be, they deserve the closest attention in the interests of public security, for they are such as enable the state to exercise its right of supervision, and which, at the same time, afford an opportunity to the investigating officer, with the help of the false document, to discover a criminal for whom he has been looking. The most important cases are falsifications of wills, falsifications, partly or complete, of acknowledgments of debts, or other documents, which are due not to the bungling hand of the tramp, or even of the vulgar professional forger, but to the refined art of the expert. A not uncommon case in India is to forge in whole an official document which is placed in some public record, either as a new document or in substitution of the genuine one, or the genuine document on the record is altered. Then application is made for a public copy of the document. The copy of course represents the false document and may be used for many purposes without exciting suspicion. A case occurred recently where the original of a will in the probate registry of the High Court, Madras, had been tampered with so as to alter the interest of the beneficiaries. A public copy was then obtained of the altered will and was used for the purpose of raising money. Sale deeds of land and mortgage documents are also constantly produced in civil suits all over India. All such cases demand not only the most minute and continuous study on the part of the investigating officer, but also the knowledge of a whole series of experts. Recourse must be had to experts in handwriting, to chemists, to paper manufacturers, to botanists, to photographers, but the investigating officer will be helped most of all by his own energy, his perspicacity, his gift of combination his patience, and, above all, by constantly keeping in mind that great blunder, grosse bêtise, which is almost inevitable in the greatest crimes, and which the most expert forger rarely fails to commit. The author has seen a most important document which had been manufactured with supreme skill. It was really a work of art. Paper, writing, text, form, everything had been chosen by the hand of the master, and yet, incredible though it be, the forger spoke in the text of his late majesty Francis, although the document was dated two years before the death of that emperor. The forger, at the time of executing the false document, had been in the habit of hearing talk of the late emperor Francis. This habit led him to put the word late in the document, and this piece of stupidity led to the discovery of the fraud. Wills, in his Principles of Circumstantial Evidence, relates a similar case. A certain Alexander Humphreys, attempted in the High Court of Justiciary, Edinburgh, in the year 1839, to procure large sums of money, relying upon ancient documents. These documents were marvellously counterfeited, but it was discovered that one of them, dated 7th December 1639, 
had been signed by the Chancellor Archbishop Spottiswood, who had died on the 26th November 1639. The forger who had consulted the list of chancellors only knew that Lord Loden, the successor of Spottiswood, had not entered on his functions until 1641, and thought that Spottiswood had been chancellor up to that time. He was ignorant that between the two there had been an exceptional interregnum of two years. In an important letter which was the basis of a big suit, the date 1812-1881 had been altered into 1811-1881. The forger had overlooked, however, that in the document the 31st of the month was referred to, which was in keeping with December, but not with November. A common blunder of this kind is when misspellings are found in the document which would not be likely to be made by the executant. A celebrated example of this occurred in America during the presidential campaign of 1880, in which a letter was published advocating the importation of Chinese cheap labor and purporting to be written by Mr. Garfield, who was subsequently elected president. Apart from certain peculiarities in the handwriting, the letter was at once detected and denounced as a forgery through three instances of bad spelling which General Garfield could never have committed. The words were economy, companies, religiously. What we have stated shows how important it is to examine from every point of view the text of a suspected document, for the inconsistencies, the tricks of style, the anachronisms, the transportation of persons and events, constitute of themselves certain proofs. We may here recall certain forgeries and their discovery, which will not of course occur under the same form to the investigating officer, but which, apart from their general interest, will show what trifles must be taken into account, and what methods should be employed, mutatis mutandis, in modern cases. One of the most scientifically interesting forgeries was that by Wenzel Hanka, without any lucrative object, of the manuscript known by the name of Königinhofer Handschrift. He had manufactured with infinite trouble and undoubtedly ability poems in the old Bohemian Slav tongue, with the intentions of endowing his country with a poetical treasure similar to that of other ancient nations. These Slav poems were so successful that for many years they struck the whole world with astonishment and admiration, and even gave to Goethe the first idea of one of his songs. And yet, all these poems are today recognized as forgeries. The color employed in the design of one of the initial letters of the text could not resist minute criticism of the exterior form of the document, for the chemist found in the letters, supposed to be drawn about the year 1300, Prussian blue, which was discovered only at the commencement of the 18th century by Diesbach. This discovery was confirmed by the results of a critical examination of the matter, which showed that the linguistic form, the notions of law, and other conceptions in various branches of knowledge corresponded to the point of view of the year 1820 and following years, a point of view which even today is passed and recognized as inexact. But if in the supposed poem of 1300, the linguistic forms, the social references, etc., 
are represented according to the ideas of 1820, and if it also proved that the forms and the real social manners of 1300 were very different from what we find in the manuscript, the latter cannot be authentic. For example, in one of the poems there is mention of drums, which it has been shown were unknown at that period. Finally, after the death of Hanka, all the instruments of fraud were found in his library, not only all the books and treatises calculated to assist him in his work, but also innumerable specimens of handwriting, which showed clearly how Hanka had little by little prepared himself to write his collection of poems. From this case we may learn, 1. How important the help of a chemist frequently is, although he may be the very last person we should think of having recourse to, one is almost tempted to say that our inquiries are frequently rendered successful only by good luck. In the preceding case, no one had certainly the slightest idea of looking for Prussian blue, but it was found by pure chance. A student of the history of art, desiring to know what paints were used in Bohemia in the 13th and 14th centuries, caused a chemical analysis to be made of all the colors found in the manuscript, and curiously enough, discovered Prussian blue. 2. The results of the criticism of the matter of the document, such as were obtained in the Königinhofer Handschrift, can also be obtained in the most modern fabricated documents. Just as in that manuscript mention is made of drums, which at that time did not exist, so in a false will mention was made of the name and date of birth of an infant, who was not in existence at the date of the will. 3. The examination of Hanka's library shows how important it is to make in all cases domiciliary searches. We neglect too easily the making of new searches once we are in possession of the false document itself, and we lower the value of what remains to be proved by exaggerating the value of that which is already established. Too much importance cannot be attached to this point. When one has found a valuable piece of evidence, one is apt to give it an exaggerated significance and to neglect the collection of other pieces of evidence which later on may be of great value if the fact which has been established turns out to be of less consequence than was thought. The objects found in the library of Hanka were not searched for intentionally ad hoc, for it was only by chance that they were found when his goods were sold by auction after his death many controversies would have been spared if they had been looked for at the time, a proceeding always easy in a criminal investigation by domiciliary perquisition. We may mention also the interesting way in which the discovery was made of the falsification of the manuscript of the songs called Wiener Schlummerliedes, which in 1859 Pfeifferlich entrusted to the care of Professor Zappert. The microscope showed that the spots of grease on the parchment, which were the proofs of its antiquity and consequently of its authenticity, were to be found under the writing. Another blunder, almost comical in its nature, was committed by a celebrated forger, the Greek Simonides, who did not recognize the nature of an eye-hole in the parchment, a blunder which, hardly explicable in a cheat of his ability, led to the discovery of the forgery. Owing to the great value which parchment possessed in those days, 
people made use even of the morsels of skin which were incomplete, as for instance the skin of the head, in which naturally were the holes where the eyes should be. Now Simonides had amongst his parchments a leaf with such a hole in it, which he used like the others. As we have said, he mistook the nature of this hole and wished to pass it off as a subsequent deterioration in the manuscript, so as to give it a greater appearance of authenticity. At the place in question there came the word animadverted. There he wrote the first letters of the word before the hole, and the last letters after it, so that it looked as if the middle of the word had disappeared through the wearing away of the parchment after the writing. This would have been altogether impossible if the manuscript had been authentic, for it was easy to establish with absolute certainty by means of anatomy and microscopical examination that it was an eye-hole and nothing else. If, then, it was a hole of this kind, it must have existed in the parchment always, and, if the document had been really written at the time indicated, that is to say, if it had been authentic, the writer would have either written round the hole or jumped over it. In any case, he would certainly not have wished people to think that the hole was made later on. The forger alone who had not recognized the true nature of the hole could have acted in the manner shown by the document. An almost equal piece of stupidity was committed about the year 1830 by a forger who fabricated a document pretending to date from the 4th century A.D. The parchment of this document had really been gnawed by mice, making a hole in it. On the first page of the writing the forger recognized the existence of the hole and continued the word on the other side of it, but when he came to the second page he forgot this and left out a part of the word, just as Simonides did. Thus there had been a hole when he wrote the first page and none when he wrote the second, a good enough proof that the document was false. In a recent case in southern India, a pronote put in as having been made, stamped and dated in 1900, bore a stamp with the king's head, which stamp did not of course exist in that year. For experts in handwriting, see page 230. End of section 20